Today's reading is uh, from Matthew on page 987. You'll find that in the Bibles in, uh, under the chairs in front of you. Starting from chapter 19, the last verse 30, through to chapter 20, verses 16. But many of you who are first will be last, and many of you who are last will be first. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landover, who went early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius, one for the day, uh, for the day, and sent them into his vineyard. About nine in the morning he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go work in my vineyard, and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went off again about noon, and about three in the afternoon, he did the same thing. About five in the afternoon, he went out and still found others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day long and doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to the foreman, call all the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came, and each received a denarius. So when those who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These who were hired last only worked one hour, they said. And you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the work at, at the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, I am not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I will give you I will give the one who has hired last the same as I have given you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first and the first will be last. I'm one of the ministers here. Lovely to be in church with you this morning. Just before we get into the passage today, I want to finish a conversation we've been having for the last two weeks about setting up our years for Christian growth. I promise as a consequence of that, the sermon will be shorter because I know it's a hot day. Look, you don't even have to wear long pants, do you? So um, I asked uh, us a couple of weeks ago whether we wanted to grow as Christians. I imagine we all said yes. And then I asked rhetorically how many of us have got concrete plans to grow as Christians. And my suspicions were not that many. So I made a few suggestions. The first was that we do something for others. That is, we get involved in service. That will help us grow. The second is that we do something for ourselves. That is, read the Bible for ourselves and pray on the back of it. And I've outlined a couple of ways that we want to help you do that. And there'll be more information about that as we go through the year. Last week, I suggested you want to do something with others. That is, you want to meet together in small groups to read the Bible, pray together, encourage one another. We've previously called them small groups. I'm going to suggest we call them growth groups from this point on because we actually want to grow. And you might remember if you were here last week, I put on my surf life saving hat to remind us that when you're in a growth group, there's always someone looking out for you, just like there is down at the beach. And also my ridiculously tiny little spade to remind us that when you're in a growth group, Uh, Actually, meeting together in a smaller context can be something that really aids lots of growth. But what if you can't meet in a growth group? What if you can't be at the same place at the same time for an hour and 45 minutes every week? Does that mean you have no option? Well, I want to say, no, it doesn't, and you just need to be a bit more creative about it. And uh, the concept of 
of a core group is one that's familiar in other churches where maybe it's just you and one other person or you and two other people or you and three other people and, and you can't meet at the same time the same place every week but you have 45 minutes at lunch in the city or maybe there's 45 minutes you could spare at a cafe before you hop on the ferry or maybe there's a 45 minutes or an hour that you might have on a Saturday morning where you could meet with one, two or three others to read the Bible and pray together and I'd want to say let's take up those opportunities to grow and uh, maybe there's people that you're already doing something like that with already. Well, I want to say, why don't you formalize that? And why don't you jump in with kind of these core groups or growth cores that I'm very keen to start up this year. And maybe, you, maybe you've, you've never done that with anyone before. And you think this could be a year where I get together with one, two or three other people in order to read the Bible, pray and encourage one another in order to grow. If you're in any way interested in that, I would love you to just write your name and a contact detail on this Connect card that Bruce was talking about earlier. Pop it in the collection bag when it comes around and I'll be in touch with you for the next, in the next few days. Well, I'd like you to get out uh, your Bibles at Matthew chapter 19. And I'm going to pray for us as we do that, and then we'll get stuck into this passage. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, thank you for your goodness to us, uh, your great generosity, in fact. And we pray we might learn more about that now. For Jesus' sake, amen. When I start with a question, what is fair in the divorce proceedings of Jeff and Mackenzie Bezos? If you don't know, Jeff Bezos is uh, the head of the American e-commerce juggernaut known as Amazon. Uh, it's only the second company to be valued at over US $1 trillion. He's the richest man in the world. Two weeks ago, Jeff and Mackenzie Bezos announced that they were getting divorced. And so that question, what does fair look like when you're splitting such extraordinary wealth, is, uh, well, it's occupied attention in the media. And if you're not involved personally, in the end of a long-term relationship, which is a grievous thing, then that's actually an interesting question, isn't it? Hey, Coast, is this echoing a lot? It feels like it's echoing. Once is enough for me, isn't it? Yes. Now, what do you think? Should they just go 50-50? Uh, I mean, should he, as the mastermind, get the lion's share? Or should she, who played a supportive role to the detriment of her own career be compensated richly for that, especially given that she's a novelist and the Amazon company has pretty much sounded the death knell of the traditional publishing industry, her industry. I mean, what is fair in that situation? I wonder what you think. I used to meet a lot of parents when I was doing youth ministry in my previous job, and uh, every now and again they would tell me that their child has a very strong sense of fairness. And I quietly thought to myself, yeah, I bet it's stronger when they reckon they've been wronged. Not many of us complain, do we, when uh, we've received more than fair treatment, do we? I mean, have you everyone, ever heard someone say, I'm really burdened by the fact that I live in Australia, where we have free medical treatment and a social safety net called welfare and comparatively little government corruption and public transport and, you know, beaches and stuff. It's not fair. Or... Um, have you ever heard someone say, you know, it just doesn't feel right being born in the 20th or 21st century? It's not right I should enjoy the comforts of flushing toilets and airline travel. I mean, I can get the internet while I'm sitting on a plane going a thousand kilometers an hour at 30,000 feet whilst an agreeable person hands me a refresher towel 
after serving me a warm dinner. It's so unfair. I don't deserve it. I feel bad about that. I mean, you never hear people say that, do you? But that question, what is fair, is at the very heart of today's parable, the parable of the workers in the vineyard in chapter 20. And today we are finishing off our series called Purple Rain, in which we're looking at these purple or rich passages in Scripture that describe the reign of Jesus, uh, our undisputed King. I chose this passage today because I've never heard it preached, and I think it tells us something inspiring about the kingdom of God if we've got ears to hear it and, of course, hearts willing to receive it. Now, you'll notice uh, that Rusty picked up the reading in chapter 19, verse 30, which is actually a part of the true story, not a parable, but a true story of the rich young man, which is a far more recognizable story to us, isn't it? But if you look at how that story ends, chapter 19, verse 30, and I'd love you to actually look at this with me. Many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. You see, that actually mirrors the way that the parable ends in chapter 20, verse 16. The last will be first, and the first will be last. So you can see that Jesus is actually connecting the parable that we're looking at today with this story, true story of the rich young man who comes up to him. And the thing that really connects the two is that the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God are different to the way that things often are here on earth. Now you think about the story of the rich young man, if you know it. He looks for all money like he would be a prime candidate for Christianity, a prime candidate for the kingdom, for eternal life. He is wealthy. He's uh, presumably well-educated because of his wealth. He's highly moral. He's kept all the commandments, the outward commandments at least, since he was a boy. I mean, he appears almost presidential in the John F. Kennedy sense of that word. But he walks away from Jesus sad, and he walks away from the kingdom. He walks away from eternal life because he loves his cash so much. And that freaked out the disciples because they looked at this prime candidate and go, if he can't be saved, who can? And yet it was actually them, wasn't it? The disciples uh, who looked to be last but we're in fact first. And this young chap looked to be first, but would be last and outside the kingdom because he loved his wealth. So keep that uh, story parked in your mind as we look at this parable. In the parable, uh, it's the kingdom of heaven. Uh, That's talking about wherever, whenever God rules over God's people. That will certainly be in heaven, but it actually occurs in its infancy here on earth. And the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is like a landowner looking to hire men to work in the vineyard, to hire workers. Maybe it's harvest time, the owner needs extra help. And so he goes amongst the landless and possibly even homeless guys hanging around in the town to work for him at the rate of a denarius for the day. A few hours later, about nine o'clock, he goes and gets some more. At midday, he gets some more. At three o'clock, get some more fellas and then finally at the 11th hour at about five o'clock in the afternoon got some more guys who are going to work for just a single hour now that these guys were the last ones picked is probably because they were social outcasts or the oldest or the weakest or the most disliked they were the least likely candidates why else hadn't they been chosen earlier and yet when it comes to pay time Unusually, these guys get paid first, a denarius, a day's wage for their one hour of work. 
And of course, you know, the other fellas who'd worked all day during the heat of the day saw this and thought in verse 10, oh, we must be getting more because we've worked more. But they don't. They get the single denarius too. And you can just imagine them, can't you, looking at their coin, frowning, and then looking at the, the guys who had barely raised a sweat, holding the same coin, and that dark green beast that we know as envy enters the fray and they complain to the master. Now the response that the master gives to their complaint, which is really Jesus' response to us, tells us two very important things. So I'd love you to look at it with me as we read it in full from verse 13. I'm not being unfair to you, friend, says the master. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? Well, we learn two important things from that. And the first is that God gives according to his generosity. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Clearly, God is generous and he's not constrained by our kind of human concept of fairness, justice, user pay, sing for your supper, or however you want to think about it. God is generous. Can I say that enough? God is generous. And he often rewards according to his own concept of generosity rather than our strict, narrow, tight-fisted concept of you get what you work for, you get what you deserve, you get what you get, and you don't get upset. When I was uh, a little boy, a long time ago, my brother and my sister and I used to go into the city with my mum to meet my dad in the school holidays. Sometimes we would all go and see a movie together because that strip along George Street was the only place they had cinemas in the city a long time ago. And uh, it was a big deal, a bit of an adventure. And in those days, they had, uh, they had trains called Red Rattlers. Now, who remembers the Red Rattlers? Excellent. Uh, old school. Single deck trains, no automatic doors, which meant if you weren't holding on, you could actually fall out of them. And they're very hot and uncomfortable. And one day we were on our way home from the city with my mum, and we bought a train ticket, which entitled each of us to one journey from Town Hall to Gordon. Now that afternoon was very hot. It was like today, very hot, crowded and uncomfortable. And an older man with big shopping bags got on, but there were no seats left. And so my brother and I, probably at the nudging of my mum, got up to give him our seats. By the way, that's still the right thing to do, I think. And he sat down, relieved, and then he reached into his bag and he pulled out this model ship, which he had bought that day, and he just gave it to us. Now, I don't know if he'd bought another one for his grandson. I don't know if maybe he was kind of really into models and was going to make it himself. All I know is that we did a very small thing of give up our seats and he gave us this awesome ship. I was at my parents' place at Christmas and it was still there. I was like, Mum and Dad, do you not ever throw anything out? Does this still spark joy in your life? It's not the depression anymore, Mum. Anyway, with my train ticket, I got exactly what I deserved. I got exactly what I paid for. 100% fair. With the ship, I got what I didn't deserve because the old dude was giving out a generosity not out of obligation. Now you tell me, which one of those is better? Of course, this was better 
God is generous. He gives out of his generosity. His kingdom is founded on a principle of extraordinary and extravagant generosity. It's ruled by a king called Jesus who is himself fundamentally generous, even at great cost to himself. Have you not thought about this, friends? He gives us life and breath and created a magnificent world in which to live out of his generosity. He gives us friends, family, community, relationships, which in some way mirror the relationship between Father, Son and Holy Spirit out of his generosity. He didn't need to. He gives us education and work and sport and culture and art, which are in some ways reflective of his own intelligence and industry and creativity. In his generosity, even our difficulties, some of which are mountainous, some of which are actually insurmountable in this life, even them are not empty and meaningless experiences Even in our difficulties, he is doing a great work within our spirits and our hearts if we let him to, as he prepares us to meet with him for all eternity. Now that's generous. And of course, supremely, God gives us the opportunity to know him through the death of his son, the Lord Jesus, on the cross, in our place, for our sins, out of his great generosity, instead of the judgment and wrath that we deserve. Or let's look at it from the perspective of our great King Jesus. He voluntarily surrendered his life, though he was perfect, for our sakes, at the very point in time when we had spurned him, despised him, rejected him, or ignored him. He did not sacrifice himself after we had somehow cleaned ourselves up and made ourselves worthy, but at the very opposite time. God is a very generous God. And we follow a very generous king in our Lord Jesus Christ. And both father and son give freely out of their immense generosity. Indeed, you could say the kingdom of God is built upon a foundation of generosity. I wonder if um, when Rusty was reading this out, whether you noticed that part of the point of this parable is, is that his generosity is not only great, It's surprising. He causes his face to shine upon some unlikely people. Not the rich, not the strong, not the rulers, but the outcast, the weak, the unimpressive. The ones who are hired last at the very end of the day. Uh, Remember, it was not the rich young man who walked into the kingdom. It was, in contrast, a ragtag bunch of disciples, rough fishermen, despised tax collectors from Galilee, who look like they'd be last, but who will in fact occupy positions of great honour in this kingdom, as unusual as that might seem. Don't you think there's something wrong with churches if they don't have a higher than proportionate number of uncool and unsuccessful and unimpressive people? There's not a higher than proportionate number of disabled and disadvantaged people people without fathers or mothers, people without hope. Many who are last, not just those who become Christians last or late in life, but many who are actually just last in kind of human life, who perhaps couldn't work the whole day even if they tried, whom no one had never asked in any case for whatever reason. Those folks will be esteemed in God's kingdom 
He causes the truth of the gospel of the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus to shine into those hearts. And those folks will be saved. Many who are last will be first, and many who are first will be last. The last will be first not because they deserve to be, but because God is generous. And boy, that's a beautiful, beautiful thing. So if you look around here, uh, I don't mean looking at me, I mean looking at everyone. <laughs> and you go, what am I doing here with these uncool, unsuccessful, unimpressive people? I hope you don't think that. I hope you are thinking, man, I am so at home here. This is where I belong, all right, because God is generous, and that is a beautiful place to be. He gives life, breath, relationships, meaning even in our difficulties, and especially salvation in the death and resurrection of Jesus according to his generosity. Yes, sometimes that's surprising, but it's way better than getting what you deserve. Of course, uh, there are problems with God's generosity, and uh, that's mainly because we're just not used to it as a concept, I mean. We're so used to the whole, you, you get what you deserve. You've got to sing for your supper, fair's fair kind of thing. But sometimes when we see God's generosity in action, we misinterpret it as injustice. Perversely, sometimes we can even think of ourselves as victims. Are you envious? says the landowner in verse 15, are you envious because I'm generous? Well, that's the second thing we learn from his response. You don't want to be envious when God is generous. Last year, a, uh, a journalist for the Guardian newspaper called Moya Sana wrote about a night five years earlier when just before uh, bed, she saw a tweet from a colleague of hers which announced how delighted he was that he'd been shortlisted for a journalism award. And she felt her stomach lurch, her head spin, her teeth clench, and her chest tighten. And she wrote, I did not sleep until morning. Five years before that, when she was at university, she was scrolling through her Facebook photos. I mean, way too much time on social media, right? <laughs> scrolling through her Facebook photos of someone in her course, and as she clicked on the pictures of what was really an acquaintance who was out nightclubbing with her friends, happily laughing, Moya's mood, she felt her mood sink so fast, she had to sit back in her chair, and she wrote, I seemed to stop breathing. Didn't matter that she hadn't even entered that journalism competition. Didn't even matter that she'd never once been out clubbing and enjoyed it. She desperately wanted what those people had that left her winded. It's in Shakespeare's play Othello that the main character Iago says of his rival Cassio, he hath a daily beauty in his life that maketh me ugly. He hath a daily beauty in his life that maketh me ugly. Envy, comparisonitis, whatever you want to call it. We look at what others have and we either want it for ourselves illegitimately or we hate the fact that they have it. It just seems so, what's the word, unfair. But I am not being unfair to you, says the landowner in this parable. I am not being unfair to you, says Jesus. You know, God is never unfair to us. He never gives us less than we deserve. He never does. But because he is so often generous, he usually gives us more than we deserve. You know, um, Christians here today, 
You know, because you've been adopted as a child of God, you've been made a co-heir with the Lord Jesus Christ, that means you will actually inherit the universe. Do you know that? You get more than you deserve when you're a Christian person. And at times he gives others more than what they deserve. You know there's going to be killers in heaven, right? Those who have repented, who have turned and trusted in the Lord Jesus with all their hearts. You're going to meet them there. The truth is that if you say, he doesn't deserve to be there, but little moral me does deserve to be there. If, if you're envious in that way, you begrudge God the generosity he might extend to that person only because his violence has been paid for by the immeasurable sacrifice of Christ, who is going to miss out? The last will be first, the first will be last. Who is going to miss out? You work it out. If you're complaining about injustice against yourself, there's a good chance you're actually complaining about God's generosity. There's a chance of that. God is not unfair. He never gives us less than we deserve. Often he gives us more. And he does that according to his own pattern of generosity, which does not always match ours. So sometimes we can think God is is being unfair um, because he rewards other undeserving people. Other times we might begrudge God's generosity to others because we think that all our hard work, like our genuine heartfelt service to the Lord Jesus goes unnoticed. And we can think, how come that person gets to enjoy the the eternal pleasures of God in heaven when they're just lazy Christians or they came to the game late? I have been busting my butt for the kingdom for 40 years. You might think like that. Some of you aren't even 40 years, so it might come a little bit later, mightn't it? But it's actually not true, is it, that our humble and our heartfelt service to God goes unnoticed. If you have a look between the story, the true story of the rich young man who went away sad and this parable we've been thinking about today, chapter 19, verse 29, read this with me. This is what Jesus says. Everyone who's left houses, brothers or sisters, fathers, mothers, children, fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. You know what that means? It means that heartfelt, hard work, humble service on account of your great love for Jesus and his gospel, not as a proud attempt to be self-righteous I'm talking about, that's going to be rewarded and it'll be rewarded abundantly. And you know for the disciples who look at the rich young man going, how does that work? It means their decision to leave everything to follow Jesus would be rewarded by him. For us, it means any service that we do for Jesus because we're humble, we love Him, we love His people, we love His message, not because we're proud and we love ourselves, that will be rewarded. I mean, you get eternal life simply for trusting in Him. And you get many more blessings for serving Him well. So this parable isn't and cannot be saying that your heartfelt hard work, your humble service goes unnoticed. It doesn't. It will be rewarded abundantly. And I actually think this enables us to to give ourselves fully to it. This means we can look at a week of prayer and fasting and not go, oh, I'm freaking out. Or even, geez, that'll be good for my weight loss. Well, that's a small thing, isn't it? In light of all that I've experienced. It means we can get involved in service, whether that's, you know, leading kids' ministry or 
serving morning teas, serving out in the community, doing the sort of stuff that Di Aitken has led the team doing for many years. We can give ourselves fully to it. In fact, we can do it properly and well because we know we are serving an outstanding king and it won't go unnoticed. But I tell you, this parable is really saying is you don't need to stress out, friends, when God's generosity extends to others. You can rejoice when God's generosity extends to others because you know how much it has already extended to you. I mean, isn't that the sign that you understand God's generosity as displayed in His King, the Lord Jesus Christ? You rejoice when His generosity extends to others. You delight in it rather than despise it. You think to yourself, wow, wow. Another undeserving person gets to experience the salvation and the love of God for all eternity. I mean, wow. And in fact, it moves you even further along from just rejoicing in God's generosity to undeserving people. I think it it moves you towards generosity in your own life. You think to yourself, man, I have experienced the, the generosity of God in saving me. I have seen the generosity of Christ in sacrificing himself for me as well as for many others. It's not too big a thing for me to part with some of my time, some of my talents, some of my treasures that after all God has given to me anyway. I I can pass some of that blessing on to others, whether it's my time, my my friendship, hospitality, my uh, possessions, my riches, whatever it is. That's not beyond me when I've experienced so much of God's generosity in general, and in particular, the salvation that comes through His King and Son, the Lord Jesus. Well, friends, as we finish up, we did start today thinking about what is fair. Such a good question. What is fair? It's something that we have an inherent sense of, I'm assured. But I think we've seen today there is something better than what is fair, and it's called generosity. Our King's kingdom is characterized by generosity. Our God's character is typified by generosity. Let our actions be marked by generosity too as we serve Him and other people wholeheartedly and humbly under His magnificent purple reign. Let's pray together. Dear Lord, God and Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for your extraordinary generosity to us in so many ways, but especially in the salvation that is offered through the Lord Jesus Christ, his life, death and resurrection. We freely admit we are undeserving people and we delight in your generosity. And uh, even more than that, we, we want to see your generosity extended to other people And we want to see generosity extended even within ourselves as we freely give of ourselves, our time, our talents and our treasures for the sake of you, for the sake of your kingdom, for the great message about Jesus and for other people. And for the glory of Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen. Amen. We're going to finish our time together by singing a song. It's an offertory song. If you've got one of those connect cards, feel free to place it in one of the bags as they come around. Let's sing. Please stand up and join us in singing.
There's a place. 